I'm Patricia Pierce. Welcome to the Evolutionary Activist Podcast. We are living at an important moment in our history, a time that is calling us into a new way of being, a new consciousness from which a sustainable, just, and peaceful future can arise. In this podcast, we explore ways to help that future take hold within ourselves so that together we can help it come forth in our world. Our guest today is Dr. Penny Gill, a longtime professor of politics at Mount Holyoke College and eventually dean of the college. Penny Gill had spent her career teaching undergraduates how to think more deeply about politics and economics. She received her BA from Northwestern University and her Master of Arts, Master of Philosophy, and PhD from Yale University. Dr. Gill has pursued a broad range of interests in European politics, political thought, and contemporary processes of globalization, as well as being a lifelong student of the wisdom traditions, comparative spiritualities, and the work of Carl Jung and his associates. In 2003, as she was grappling with her grief and horror over the U.S. invasion of Iraq, to her astonishment, Penny began receiving a, what the Tibetans called a direct transmission from an entity named Manjushri. Manjushri imparted to her a far-reaching explication of our current global situation, one which reframes the violent conflicts, climate change, and global economy we see careening out of control. Penny compiled the teachings she received into a book titled, What in the World is Going On? Wisdom Teachings for Our Time, which was published in 2015. Now retired, she lives on Madeline Island, Wisconsin. Penny, I have been looking forward to this conversation for probably at least a year. Um, so I'm so glad that you could be uh, with me today and with our listeners today. And I just want to first start off by, by letting people who are listening to this podcast know how much I love this book. And I've read it probably at least five times. And, and among all the many things that I have read, I resonate so deeply with this teaching and am so inspired by it and find it so um, elucidating and... Um, and challenging also, and really placing us in this historical moment um, in our, in our uh, evolution. So before we get started, can you just share with us a little bit about what, what your experience was when you started beginning, when you started receiving this information? What was that like? Well, first of all, let me say how delighted I am that um, I have finally settled in to do this with you. At our Friendship has been such a gift, and it's wonderful to bring it out into the world in this particular way. And someday I'm going to come back to you, and I'm going to interview you about your book. And then we'll, <laughs> then we'll be even. Then we'll be even, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so I had come out to the island, which is out in the west end of Lake Superior, at the end of the school year. And as I do, I was very busy with my journal trying to... Um, let loose of my heartache and grief and, and deep anger about um, 
global politics, American foreign policy, just the increasing levels of violence. And I had just finished teaching a course in radical ecology, and that had really tuned me into a an absolutely terrified understanding of what we were doing to the planet. And as I wrote and wrote, I was trying to empty out all of my unhappiness into the journal so I could have my usual wonderful summer here on the island. And as I dumped my word for that process, all of a sudden one day there was um, a very quiet, internal, interior voice, deep and dark, that said, that's not how we see it. And I thought, really? Who is we? Where is that voice? I was pretty shaken by it. And I went out for a walk to try to let my mind clear. I thought, you know, maybe this was a bit of a waking dream or something like that. But the voice returned several mornings in a row, and I finally agreed, um, just, I guess, out of curiosity, to ask the voice to explain to me what that, what that meant. And we settled down into a kind of simple, I guess it would be a mode of dictation, and I was writing madly in my journal trying to keep up with the voice. And one day the voice said, you know, this would work better if you typed on your laptop, which somehow just cracked me up. I thought that was so funny. So pragmatic. And yeah, and indeed, it was true. It went much better. And a week or two after that, so now I'm two or three weeks into this process, and I had found the energy absolutely overwhelming. I'd sit with it for a half an hour, and for the rest of the day, I, I was prostrate. I could hardly move. The energy download was just gigantic. One day, I said, so what should I call you? And the voice said, well, the Tibetans call me Manjushri, and that was a gigantic kind of blow or a startlement or something. Was that a name you were familiar with? Well, I knew it, but I knew nothing about it. And I was just going to say, I, I had no experience with channeling. I didn't, I didn't really know the word. And I think there had always been a part of me that was very open to my unconscious because of my long study of Jung. But um, this, this was a whole, different, a whole different category of experience. And I seem to have been able to just surrender to it out of curiosity or some deep sense of this is a gift in some form, Penny, even if you don't understand what it's about. And so off we went. And those teachings came over the course of a couple of years and I eventually put them away, and then I typed, I typed up a slightly edited version just to clean up all the ahs and repeats and things like that, just cleaning up the text a little bit to make it more legible. And I gave it to a friend of mine in the Valley in Massachusetts, and he was knocked out by it, and he started Xeroxing it and giving it to his friends and I was kind of spooked by that. And I asked him to keep track of who was giving it to him. It was as if I needed to keep control of it. And then, and then on my 70th birthday, which is in September, I decided to stay at the island through my birthday. It was, seemed important. Um, 
almost ritually or spiritually or something like that. I needed to be here by myself. And I was standing out looking at Lake Superior, and I thought, well, if I were to die tomorrow, one day after my 70th birthday, is there anything I would regret not having done? And like a lightning flash, up came the immediate answer. If I haven't published the Manjushri material, I will be really upset. So that, so that fall, that was the fall of 2013, I got at it. And it went very quickly and very easily. It was clearly, the, the rails were greased by the teachers in some way or other. Uh, so you already were prepared for this. I mean, you'd had this deep interior life for a while, I gather. Yeah, I, that's certainly that's certainly true, and um, and I think it probably started um, when I learned how to do dream work in as Jung taught in my thirties, and an important uh, tool of Jung's is active imagination, and. So I had had extended uh, relationships of active imagination with what I understood to be archetypal figures uh, rising up out of my unconscious. And so for a long, long, long time, I have understood both that Kuan Yin relationship, which has probably saved my life, and then the new, um, new appearance of Manjushri. The question for me was always, so is this like that active imagination work? Is this, is this um, somehow in that same category of uh, a strong, dominant, articulate, consistent piece of my unconscious and making really um, significant and sustained contact with my conscious self? So did it feel qualitatively different from your other active imagination? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I'm sure it did because the energy was so potent at, at one hand. And on the other hand, I had never, um, Kuan Yin was the first and then Manjushri the second of recognizable figures. In other words, that had some other existence out in the, cultural landscape the other the others were were much much more personal and private yeah yeah well that doing dream work and active imagination is something is an interest that we share and it's it can be such a powerful experience and when i'm reading your book i i it it feels of a totally different totally different quality uh the expansiveness of it the intelligence of this teaching the way that it it interconnects everything. I mean, our global situation, the the economic realities, the environmental realities, the violence, all of it is so far-reaching. And also, it goes completely personal and into the interior landscape of each of us and talks about this moment on this planet, this this really important moment of transition and I'm curious, when you are trying to describe this teaching to somebody who's not familiar with it and has never read it, how do you even go about describing it? Uh, it depends how much time I have. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> I can go on for a long, long time. Um, <clears throat> let me back up a minute and, and say that the 
biggest difference between Manjushri and all the other teachers, interior and, and Kuan Yin as well, is that all of those previous teachings were personal. They were about healing me. They were about teaching me. They were about helping me find my way to the trailhead of my spiritual journey. Manjushri was not, not paying attention to those things. He had a message that he wants out in the world. So it had a very different valence to it. And I, I think in some ways I'm still struggling with that, still trying to understand how to bring it forth and um, trying to, to unburden myself of other things about my own personality to enable me to be a better teacher of this material. I like to say that his most stunning impact on me has, is, is his incredible ability to reframe everything. And because he's teaching and, and speaking from a level of consciousness that I can barely imagine and certainly can't participate in, the reframing, which, which is obvious to him, is revolutionary to me and, and to people who listen. So that's the first thing, is to, to describe a complete reframing about what feels like the total catastrophe human beings have made of our life together in community um, and our, our relationship with our planet. Those are the two big things. So that's one thing. I think the two pillars of the, of the teachings in the book are about the enormous new energy that's arriving on the planet and the many, many different possible responses to that. And we can, we can talk about that later. But, and the second, and because of that, lots and lots of analysis and teaching and practices for how drenched in fear we are, and that fear is the main issue for human beings right now. Partly that so much fear is being triggered by the new energy that's arriving, and partly because fear is what keeps us small and keeps us separate, or believing we're separate as you teach so beautifully over and over again. And that there are two kinds of fear, there's the fear that we need to have, the, as we always laugh and say, the, the fear that we recognize is there's a tiger in the grass. That's good fear. That helps to support survival. But that because of human beings' amazing creativity and ability to use our imagination, we create endless scenarios, great libraries of stories about, about fear and what we fear. And it's all a creation of our own very hyperactive little minds. And that is what um, Manjushri wants us to address directly as a civilization at this moment in planetary human life. That's what, that's what he wants us to get to work on. So many of the teachings in, in the book are about how fear has come to be released at the level that it has, how it is inscribed in our institutions and our economic system, our political system, our relationships with each other, and our, our inability to tap into 
the natural compassion that holds us all in life. So that's how I would describe the book in a, you know, in a couple paragraphs. There's so many things that come to my mind as you're speaking. And first of all, this, uh, the new energies, which Manjushri refers to as the shower of spirit, which is, I think is just a beautiful, beautiful term. And, and talking about um, the need for, for us to expand our consciousness. One of the things that I loved in this book is how he talks about human beings as a bridge species and the unique challenges that that brings as a bridge species, humans who have, you know, we do have the capacity when we are open to access the great mind or, you know, universal mind, whatever we want to call it. And we live in this world of form. So, so we bridge the, the non-visible and the visible and, and that even being that in that bridge place presents its own unique challenges because we're navigating these two different um, dimensions or realms that um, it just, it's tricky sometimes. And we live in a world, in a culture or a civilization that denies the reality of anything we can't touch. So that's a huge issue, I think, for our particular culture right now, is that we are being we are self-destructing because of how we have wedded ourselves to a materialist view of reality. And I agree, you know, we, I love the native understanding of human beings who stand on the earth and under the sky. And that that's, that that's the task, is to hold those two realms together. Um, every indigenous culture has known this for forever. You know, we can go back thousands and thousands of years. This was a very early understanding. It's, you know, the last couple of centuries that have rejected that idea. So getting back to the whole fear thing, Manjushri talks about fear being the major obstacle to our ability to uh, expand our consciousness. And, and he talks about politics as, I think, being condensed fear. Or something right. like that, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, so I've just become. The book really has sensitized me to this predominance of fear, and then and then um, there's also this emphasis in this book about opening the heart center, and that the way forward for us is to be able to open our our heart center. And what's your understanding at this point between? fear and opening the heart center our hearts i mean you know as well as i do and our listeners know this too that if we're frightened we cannot be open to mystery we cannot be open to someone else's pain we cannot be open even to the the experience of a a child or a bird call or anything fear shuts fear shuts us down so dramatically and I imagine just layers and layers and layers and layers of self-protection over my heart center, um, which I guess I've been trying to dissolve and peel back and remove and let loose of, especially these last wonderful years since I first got this teaching. It's been such a powerful teaching for my own life. But the heart center is our organ of 
first of all, it's an organ of knowing. Not of thinking, but of knowing. It's the opening to the other realm, to the realm of reality, really. It's the, the doorway to a relationship with spirit or with the sacred or with the holy. Um, it's where spirit floods in. It's where uh, compassion moves through, you know, like tidal waves. Um, it's, it's the basis of a really rich and wonderful human life. And because we live in a world that denies that even exists, much less a world that would organize itself around facilitating the emergence of that and the well-being of that openness in the middle of our chest. If you ask anybody to describe, um, a moment of being cared for, their right hand will go right over their chest. Mine just did because I was about to think that sentence. We know where that is. Our body knows where that is. But there's this funny thing about Western capitalist, materialist, scientific culture that says that's not real. You're making that up. And that's our deep sickness, our very, very deep sickness. So as our culture faces this, you know, we've come to the end of the world that we've created. It's, it's done. It's, cra it's crashing. That's actually pretty good news if we can survive it, because it means that a new world that is drenched in this uh, opening, this understanding about spirit, about compassion, about the fundamental goodness of life, that's emerging, and you can see signs of it everywhere. It's happening all over. But the breaking apart of the old civilization is really wretched because it's hard. It, it is, is hard. really hard. It is hard. As I look at our at our culture, and you and I haven't spoken together about this directly, but certainly reading the book, I've I've become very adept at seeing how our culture and our economic system fuels fear, and how the whole, and Manjushri talks about individuality versus individualism and how our culture is so steeped in this individualism, which I think in itself fosters fear because we're, we have this mentality of having to be on our own and make it on our own, which I think also induces fear. And the teaching also talks about, and I'd love to hear your, your reflections on this, how markets have infiltrated areas of our life where they don't belong and the effects of that. Would you like to riff on that at all? We are living at this particular moment in an extraordinarily um, dangerous and unregulated form of capitalist and market economies. Capitalism works by allowing markets to make more decisions and the way one regulates a capitalist economy is to prevent markets from making decisions in some areas. For example, um, health care. If you think people have a right to health care, then you circumscribe the role of markets. The trouble is, is that markets aren't able to take account of very many values. They largely take account of values of efficiencies and exchange. 
And that's great if you are buying grain on a futures market. That's fine. That's a perfectly good set of criteria to balance supply and demand. But there are many areas where it's not appropriate to, to try to balance supply and demand that way because, because of the economic inequalities that come along with that. So the way the individualism argument gets hooked into that market analysis is that only an individual who has been stripped of most of his or her qualities and characteristics can enter a marketplace. No full human being can enter a marketplace. And so first of all, that turns us into individuals. And then because we live in a culture that so prioritizes markets, we end up prioritizing that stripped-down individual, the, the almost faceless, but certainly heartless, and, cert and in many ways valueless individual. And the worship of that kind of competitive, stripped-down individual who is who shows up in the marketplace in a competitive marketplace becomes our ideology it becomes our dominant value system in our society and that's individualism ironically that worship of individualism denies individuality it's it's a really curious backward undermining of the core concept and the fear is what keeps persuading us to enter the markets. And because in this system we have little choice. Yes, exactly. And fear, fear keeps us motivated. Fear is what's the hand in the small of our back throwing us back again and again into competitions we are going to lose. So there's no way that we are not going to be fearful. And there's no way that we can avoid more and more levels of self-protection because it's extremely dangerous and it triggers our limbic system, our, our deep need to survive. There's nothing wrong with needing to survive. It's a totally okay thing to think, feel, act upon, right? But it's, it's driving so much of our behavior and especially our public and communitarian behavior. It's driving so much of that, that we fight, we fight to try to protect little spaces where we can um, be more than in a survival mode. One of the things that Manjushri talks about is, and I think this is such a, a wonderful term, the little self, which, uh, you know, I, I use the term, and a lot of people use the term ego, but he I, I believe at some point in the book he, he says I avoid that term because of its uh, specifically the way it's used in psychology and so forth. Um, but little self, and it's almost it's almost endearing sometimes the way the way he talks about little self. But what's your take on the little self and how the little self is operating in the world and in our own lives? He feels such compassion for the little self fundamentally and because little self is trying to keep everyone safe as it were um, and when I say everyone I mean all the parts of the self safe but has no no clue no wisdom about how to go about that 
my favorite image, and when I talk about little self, is is from the Wizard of Oz, and little little self is that poor bald man sitting up there on on that high ladder with all of his sound equipment, and and when they pull back the green velvet curtain, he is totally revealed for what he is. That's little self. But little self, or the Wizard of Oz, has to claim enormous authority and power and perceptiveness and control. And it makes a deal with the rest of the person, I think. You let, you let me be in charge. It's the oldest political deal in the world. It's ancient contract theory. I will take care of you if you give me unlimited legitimate authority. It's a really bad deal. Don't do it. Little self has this con game going on. And in the process, pretty much delegitimates or silences or pushes away the other voices within a normal human person that need space and room to um, speak and express themselves. So, so the, it doesn't work to criticize little self or to try to shut it down or to send it to the back room. What has to happen is a kind of pat on the head and say, oh, sweetheart, really, this isn't helping right now. Why don't you go have a cup of tea and let the rest of us figure this out? (laughs) Yeah, much more effective approach. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting going back to that Wizard of Oz uh, image when Toto, bless his heart, pulls that curtain back. Um, and I love it that it's Toto who sees through it. Oh, so <laughs> Toto <laughs> grabs the curtain and pulls it back and reveals, you know, this, this, this behind-the-scenes dynamic. And it's so funny because the wizard behind the curtain is flustered and he keeps trying to pull off his act, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. So, and yet there's also a liberation in, in being revealed, in, in not hiding anymore. You know, there's this, this moment also of, okay, the, the charade is up, you know, game's over. And, and now I can just be who I am. You know, I can just be me who has no supernatural powers but hey here i am so that too you know the 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 act of revealing it pulling back that curtain and like you're saying not judging it but holding it in compassion but just that act of finally being able to pull the curtain back and not playing the game anymore is in itself i think liberating oh it's more than liberating it's full of joy it's full of joy and as you and I have, have talked over the, over the months, then one uncovers residual pockets of fear that have been stashed away over a lifetime. To, and they were stashed away in order to protect the person from forces out in the society, out in the world, that were, or, or the family, or the school, and it's everywhere, um, that would have been dangerous. So as when that curtain starts to be pulled back, when that uh, Toto to me is an image of unrestrained life and, and, and delight, 
when that pulls the curtain back and there is that first huge relief, like, oh, I don't have to play this charade anymore. And then there's the long, hard, kind of scruffy work of, of allowing that history of being frightened to surface, hopefully in digestible bites, and then allowed to dissipate. And that, that's really the spiritual path in most traditions. And it's all in the Wizard of Oz, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. And so Manjushri talks, one of the interesting things, one of the many, many, many interesting things in this book is he, he says of the way of his approach that it, it wouldn't really serve this culture of ours for him to try to teach about love because our culture has lost our understanding of what love is. But everybody can relate to fear. Everybody knows what fear is. And so he uses fear as the doorway into to this, this teaching and this process of being liberated from, from these old patterns and the things that we've inherited and collected in our own lives that have caused this fear. And he talks about, he, he just has a really straightforward way of talking about how to work with fear, which is, first of all, to see it, to name it, and to hold it in compassion. And that in that act, in that process, it will begin to dissolve. Mm-hmm. And let it go. And let it go. And in the process of doing that, when the fear dissolves, the thing that is left is the love, is that open heart, that open heart center. Love is real. Fear isn't. This is another conversation, probably not for today, but love is the, is the realest energy of the cosmos. We are, we are in form. We are in our life because the universe intends for us to flourish. That's that's the meaning of love is I wish you to flourish. And the universe, every time we take a breath in, the universe is saying, we wish you to flourish. Have a breath. And fear is just our resistance to that. So the love is the thing that's real. And the fear is the thing that, that is unreal. And as he talks about it, it's the product of our great imagination. And that's why it's so tricky, Patricia, because we don't want to let loose of our imagination. That's where we are our most creative, splendid, wonderful selves. That's when we are standing on the earth and holding up the sky. So to, to extricate the fearful activity of the imagination and allow the imagination to do her thing unhindered, unobstructed by fear is really a good piece of work. One of the reasons, Manjushri says, that there is such an enormous amount of conflict and violence in our in our world right now, part of it is that the internet is and the 24-hour news cycle is making us aware of so much more than we ever were before. And part of that problem is that we're not neurologically competent to deal with this much information. That's that's one piece. But the second piece is that the shower of spirit, the new energy that's coming, the revolution, and I believe it is a revolution, that we are in the midst of. Some people can accommodate to it, 
some people are going to say, I don't have the equipment to deal with this energy. I'm going to leave now and come back with better equipment. And some people are absolutely terrified and resist. And the res- those responses are, are often violent, either self-violence or violence against others. That's where these extremists are coming from. They are the people most terrified of this arriving reality. And that, that, that helps me a lot. And I think that's the most powerful piece of reframing that Manjushri has given me over these years, is that a lot of the behavior that we find just depraved is actually a a not very skillful response to the terror that is being triggered by this new energy that's coming in and people not having good enough equipment to deal with the new energy. Manjushri talks also about one of our our tasks right now is to do this work and, and dissolving the fear so that we can be open to these new energies. Because these energies are the thing that are going to help us really enter into a different way of being and anchor on the planet a different, a different reality. So in terms of that, uh, what sorts of practices have you used to help help yourself open up more fully to these energies? Mm, that's a really good question. I suppose the first part is if I can't trust it, I can at least be curious about it. So I suppose the first step is curiosity. I always think curiosity is the great solution to tons of issues. And, and then there can be uh, openness And then there's the long, hard slog of trying to locate the places of deep hurt, woundedness, all the places where I've built up self-protections. And so that's what starts this, I think, probably endless work of, of, of healing. This is really a story about healing. We haven't talked about that, but that's another way to approach the, the whole conversation. So spend time outdoors, get, get, into the, get into the mud, listen to the birds, be comfortable with quiet, allow yourself to actually be present, stay in the moment, listen to good music, read poetry. <laughs> you, you already know all the things that help to quiet down and overactive. You know, this isn't about overactive bladder. This is about overactive ego. Yes, <laughs> overactive imag- imagination in the service of fear rather than imagination in the service of love. Exactly, exactly. Well, Penny, this has been really great. I'm, I'm just really thankful to you. And I also just want to say that I marvel at what it must have been like for you as an academic with this amazing academic career and <laughs> credentials and, um, and then having this this other side of your of your life happening um, that must have been pretty wild a pretty wild ride to be to be in in both settings at once talk about challenging the epistemology of the of the academy um, these other ways of knowing and receiving knowledge uh, that you have opened yourself to it's it's just so inspiring 
Well, thank you. And it's a very good naming. It was pretty colorful, I have to say. But Patricia, this this has been such a delight. And I just bow to you in gratitude at how deeply you have gone into the into Manjushri's teachings and made them your own. It's really very, very moving. And um, I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. Well, thank you. And this conversation is definitely going to be continued, um, recorded or unrecorded. It's going to keep happening. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. So thank you and take care. You too. Thank you. Thank you.